Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Carrie Perloff, the Artistic Director of ACT, American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. ACT currently through May 1st is playing No Exit by Sartre. Later on, we've got Tales of the City, which we'll go into. Also, ACT just announced the uh, rest of the new season coming up next year, and we'll talk about that. But let's start first by talking about the past season. We'll talk at the past year from the time I talked to you a year ago. What do you think is the most successful play, the play you think worked best? Is it Tosca Project? Is it Homecoming? What do you think it is? Homecoming shocked me at how successful it was because, to be honest, Pinter is so challenging. I just expected lots of head scratching, and it was so thrilling to actually see people take that on. Of course, for me, the Tasker Project was the culmination of four years of work. I didn't feel, even as we put it up, that we were finished that work, and I'm really honored and thrilled that we're going to get to keep working on it. I was also incredibly moved by the trilogy, by the Terrell McCraney trilogy, that we were able to collaborate so successfully with the Magic Theater and Marin Theater Company to do that beautiful trilogy all across the Bay Area. Are you planning to do anything like that? Again. We're all in dialogue. I think it really changed how we deal with each other. And Jonathan Moscone was with us this year directing Clyburn, which was um, an incredible pleasure. He's now using a lot of our MFA students at Cal Shakes. He's teaching for us. So we're all in much closer dialogue. And I think that kind of thing is more likely to happen again. And what about the show? I don't want to say least successful, but the show that if you could work on it a little bit more Maybe you'd find something in there that you hadn't found before. Does any mm, show kind that's of... That's a good question. What I learned with Tosca is that to try to work in a new form, like dance theater, you don't know what you've got till you put it up. And it was an incredible pleasure to see where it had come, but I could also see where it could still go. So we're going to have a whole other rehearsal process for it in Canada uh-huh. and keep going with it. It's a process. Mm-hmm. That's why we called it the Tosca Project, because it was an ongoing project. And when Val Canaparelli and I started it, we didn't even know it would end on the main stage. We literally, he came to me after the overcoat and he said, if you love, I come from a dance background. And he said, if you love movement theater, why don't we try to put five actors and five dancers in a room and see what we can make? And you learn so much about how to do the process and who's good at this kind of process. And as I say, if you can get a second chance, it's, it's a gift. Let's talk about the show that I guess is just starting and is now through May 1st, and that's No Exit, the virtual stage and electric company version. When you're bringing in these particular shows, how do you find them? Do you get phone calls? It's a matter of staying in touch with artists whose taste you trust, and they'll tell you if something comes along that they think you should see. We have developed over the years at ACT this incredible reciprocal relationship with Canadian artists. And my production of the Tosca Project is touring Canada next fall, so it's going to play a month at Theatre Calgary, and it's going to play the Vancouver Playhouse. So when I went to Calgary last fall at the invitation of that artistic director who had seen Tosca because he knows Peter Anderson, the Canadian actor who started, it, right. et cetera, et cetera. He immediately invited us to Calgary, and when I went to cast last fall, 
I encountered no exit. I go to Canada a lot. I've directed at the Stratford Festival, so those actors are actors I'm close to. So it's been fascinating. And it started many, many years ago with a piece we brought called The Overcoat, which was a huge success here and was directed by Morris Panich and Wendy Gorling. Then we did Morris Panich's play Vigil last year with Olympia and Marco. And Wendy Gorling invited me up to a conference on physical theater in Vancouver where I met Kim Collier, who's a visionary movement theater auteur director in Vancouver who created this version of No Exit and I thought it was so theatrical and fascinating and kind of remarkable in the tradition of a lot of the multidisciplinary kinds of pieces we've done like Brief Encounter, The Black Rider, that I thought it was really worth us bringing it here. How would Sartre feel? <laughs> it's so perfect for that play because the play, as you may remember if you got dragged into it in your French existentialism right. class at college, is about three people who are trapped in this permanent bunker of hell. And as Sartre famously said, hell is other people. But hell is also having to live with the moral choices that we made in our lives and not being able to escape from them. And, uh, you know, he wrote it sort of the height of the Nazi occupation in right. France and the choices that he and other intellectuals made during that period continue to really trouble him. So what Kim has done is trap these three actors in a bunker filled with video cameras and their images are projected onto these giant screens on stage. Meanwhile, the valet who entraps them is live. So you get this brilliant visualization of Sartre's landscape of hell, which is faces bigger and bigger and bigger in front of us, trying to wriggle out of their own moral conundrums. So part of it is already pre-recorded and part of it is new? It's or? mostly live film. And after the show, the audience gets to get up and go in that bunker and see how it was made because it's totally fascinating and mysterious. Let's talk about the next show, Carrie Perloff, which is the one that everybody in the Bay Area has been looking forward to. Right now, it's running May 18th through July 10th. Could run longer and may very well. And it well. is already, as I was saying to you off the air, it has sold enormously. So the first part of the run has already sold out just about. And that's Armstead Maupin's Tales of the City starring Judy Kay. When you're putting together a show, a musical, and last fall I talked to Stephen Sondheim, and he was talking about the same ideas, you have to center it somewhere. Mm -hmm. And you've got, in the case of Tales of the City... A book that came out of a newspaper column with several different threads. Right. How do you center it? And in this particular case, what character did you center it on? It's such a good question. And it's truly, we have been working on this for three years. Jeff Whitty, who's writing the book, who's uh, remarkable, has um, been asking himself that exact question with the Scissor Sisters Band with Jason Sellers and John Garden, who are the composers, to say, what is the spine of the piece? And really, it's, it's mostly drawn from the material of the first two books, Tales of the City and More Tales of the City. And the spine of the piece, indeed, is Mrs. Madrigal. Oh. and 28 Barbary Lane. And 28 Barbary Lane as a kind of nexus, a vortex for the family that is possible in San Francisco when you pull these very disparate people who have left their own families behind together. That's the centerpiece. And Mrs. Madrigal, of course, is the glue that brings together Marianne from Cleveland, Mona, her daughter, Edgar, whom she falls in love with, Mouse, who lives with Mona. So they are all s sort of satellites around that particular son. So in, in essence, not to draw too much of a comparison, we, we could say like Sondheim's company, which is all That's around right. Bobby. 
Yeah, I think that's a good comparison. And it means that you have to be extremely judicious in the writing of it about how you allocate real estate, as it were, to each character. Armistead has an incredibly fertile imagination, and one of his gifts as a writer is that every character is really fully drawn. So you're tempted to keep everybody in there, and we've had to lose songs of characters we love because they didn't deserve the real estate because we had to stay on the main story. And I think that's going to be the journey of this project. To that extent, we're talking about something very different from the miniseries, which more or less focused on Marianne, That's played right. by Laura Linney. It's a completely different... And Marianne is certainly incredibly central to this, and Betsy Wolf is a dream, the woman who's right. playing it. And she will have enormous weight in the piece. Her story comes to life when she finds 28 Barbary Lane. So that home as a kind of metaphor for what the whole piece is about, this sort of saving island in a world of chaos that represents what we love about San Francisco and what the, the books are about. A haven of tolerance in a world of intolerance and, and hatred um, is, in a sense, what Armistead is writing about. So Marianne and all of her cohorts are really central, but I think it's animatical that holds them together. A friend of mine kind of sighed when he said, Mother Mucka? But now it makes sense. I mean, because Mother Mucka... Mother Mucka is really important to Madrigal's story, and the play is centered on, the musical is centered on Madrigal's secret. When right. does she tell that secret, and what is the cost of revealing it? Which changes, again, the focus That's from right. the original material. That's right. How involved is Armstead Moth in He has it? been such a prince. I think it is so admirable that somebody who is so close to those books and for whom those books have been his life has been so open about what needs to be done to make this a musical. He's been available whenever the creative team has wanted him, but he has never intervened. He sat through every workshop. He's never said afterwards, I don't like this or I want you to keep that or how could you have changed that? He's just delighted to be part of the party and very helpful when you ask him even detailed things like we asked him whether the nuns were actually the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Or, and he said, no, roller skating nuns in the Castro, that, they got that idea from my book. So, you know, sometimes you have to go back and say to him which came first because he's been such part of this city for so long. Sometimes when you have a, a living writer in the midst of an adaptation, it can be very contentious and difficult. And he's yeah. been nothing but generous from the beginning and so excited about this. The set, I would guess, is Barbary Lane. It's an ever-changing, very complex, beautiful structure that Douglas Schmidt, great local, yeah. wonderful set designer who's done a lot of work for us at ACT, has created so that Barbary Lane emerges. And then we also have the bathhouses, Golden Gate Park, all kinds of locations all over San Francisco. How large is the cast? It's 21. Which is really a large It's a large very big piece, cast. and I think it's really important for people to know. I mean, I feel very proud of this. This is our production, and we have raised all the funds to do it. This is not being done in collaboration with the Broadway producer who's telling us what to do and giving us enhancement money and the usual mechanism, which I uh, am quite vigorously opposed to, <laughs> but usually is what happens in the American theater. But we didn't do it that way. We we actually decided to produce it ourselves. It's very expensive, but it means that the creative team really can generate the piece that they envision and not try to accommodate it to somebody else's needs. So this is different from high society. Mm -hmm. And we learned a lot of lessons on that. You take a piece that you've created, and then when it's in the hands of Broadway producers, it goes to New York in the guise that they want it to go. And sometimes that really works, and sometimes it's really hard. So this one, it's just been such a pleasure from the beginning, because it's a, it's a really lively, smart, funny, collaborative team. And they aren't sitting there worrying about the New York Times being on their back.
Are you thinking about an afterlife? Or? It will certainly have an afterlife. There's no yeah. question. It's a wonderful, wonderful piece. I like to say it would make me happiest if it were done in every high school in America. <laughs> in this political climate, that doesn't seem likely, but it will definitely have an afterlife. But first, we want it to have a great life here. We know about what happened with the public when they moved too many shows to Broadway. It's always a crapshoot. Even a show like American Idiot, with all of its support, could only run for a year and a half. And doesn't make the home theater any money. You know, this is what people don't realize. This is not the way to support nonprofit theater. It would be so great if the press understood that, so that this endless repeated frenzy of which show is going to go to Broadway is put in perspective. It does not help sustain rich work being done in the regional theater. Carrie Perloff, let's talk a little about the new season and also the old one. One thing, you know, that ACT does, and whenever I talk to anybody from any other regional theater, they're kind of in awe of it. You maintain the canon. I noticed next season, for instance, Once in a Lifetime, the Moss Hart and George S. Kaufman play is in there, and of course the Shakespeare. And this past year we saw Pinter's The Homecoming. Right. When you're looking at shows to do for the canon, how do they come up? I, I would gather Once in a Lifetime came up because Mark Rucker directed it for the MFA program. We've loved welcoming Mark to ACT, and he has an amazing comic joy and aesthetic, among other things, that's been really infectious and great love for early Americana. So one way that plays happen is that artists we care about champion them. Somebody has to really be in love with it. It's a hard challenge to direct a play. You want to get up every morning and, and really go to the mat. So last year he proposed as a style piece for our second year MFAs in the spring to try Once in a Lifetime, and it was remarkable what he did with them. Absolutely remarkable. It's a very difficult style. Vocally, the linguistic style, the, the physical style, it's hugely transformative. It's, it was a company of, I don't know, 12 or 13 doing something like 45 roles. And we just fell in love with it, in part because it also oddly seemed very resonant today about what happens to a culture when technology radically changes. And that was that moment when we went from silent movies to talkies and suddenly everyone had to reinvent themselves. And everyone was scrambling, as in this social media generation, to catch up, to ride the wave, to figure out what the next big thing was. And some people did it and some people got left behind. And sometimes the idiots like George are the ones that succeeded. It seemed very trenchant. So when you ask about the canon... What's remarkable about great plays, you know, Ezra Pound said literature is news that stays news, and great plays stay news because they're rich, but they come in and out of attention because of what's happening in the zeitgeist around them. For example, it seemed like a really perfect moment right now to look at Once in a Lifetime, given that we're in Northern California and that we're surrounded by new technologies. What I love about what ACT does is that even if I wind up walking away scratching my head, we don't get chances to mm. see that, and that's I very important. I think you're right. I think it's really too bad that in our obsession with topicality and relevance, we forget that the really great theater experiences are sometimes the ones that are slightly beyond us or slightly unfamiliar from another time, and you suddenly realize that the issues you're dealing with now have been there since the Greeks, you know, and that's why it's worth doing a play like Electra, which we did last summer at the Getty. Um, and I also think new plays sit better next to classical plays. You're listening to an interview with Carrie Perloff, who is the artistic director of ACT, American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. I noticed two new plays in the upcoming season. One is Scorched by... Wajdi Moad. 
And yeah. the other is Maple and Vine by Jordan Harris. Well, Maple and Vine came out of the Humana Festival That's of right. New Plays, right? Mm -hmm. This is a totally fascinating play, but I'll give you a funny window into how we choose plays at ACT. We got the play from Jordan's agent, who's also Mark Rucker's agent. And Mark read it. He came to me the next morning and said, I read this play. I loved it up till two-thirds in, and then I was enraged. And that immediately piqued my curiosity. I thought, really? So we did this reading. We argued, Richard, about this play in the whole building, I want to say for two hours after we did the reading, big arguments about culture today and how people are living and choices people make and feminism and race and gender, because it's a play about time travel. It's a play about a couple who've just miscarried, who are very unhappy in the 21st century living in New York, a mixed race couple, and they choose to go live in this uh, 1950s gated sort of reenactment community. I was sort of appalled on some level. I, I've, I've fought for women to have public lives and, and be taken seriously all my life. And I thought, really, this is what we want women to go back to and be homemakers again? But the play asks a lot of trenchant questions about whether we are so overwhelmed by choice today that we feel paralyzed and unhappy, whether simplicity is sometimes a better guide to mental health. And so whether you agree with it or not, I thought the play engendered so much discussion, like Clyburn Park, like the play we did this year, right. big arguments, that it was worth doing. Our audience is very engaged, and they like those kind of arguments. The playwright of Clybourne Park said in an interview that the play was made in essence, written in essence for a middle class white audience that can afford to see plays like this. So it's a specific audience being thrown something and being forced to deal with it. And uh, is that kind of what we're dealing with with something like that? I, I don't know that Bruce said exactly that that's what he'd written it for, but he acknowledged that mainstream theater in America is mostly educated and white. And he wrote a play that made that audience really squirm. I saw Maple and Vine in Louisville, which is a very different universe from the Bay Area. There are things in the play that are going to tweak people here that don't raise people's shackles in the same way in Louisville. As the artistic director of the Actors Theater of Louisville said to me, we still live in the 50s, so it doesn't seem so radical to right, us. Yeah. Here, we have fought very hard in the Bay Area for lots of things, for racial tolerance, for uh, gender tolerance, for all kinds of things, and so it asks a lot of questions. It's a very funny play. It's also very sad, and um, in the end, I think the characters realize they've made it may be desirable to go back in time, but it's not possible, and ultimately that we have to move forward with the choices that we've made. When you're talking about people really arguing about this... What happened is less that we were arguing. With Pinter, you're arguing about aesthetics, right. which is fine and great. And you're either saying, it's opaque, I don't understand it, or it's lyrical and extraordinary and I adore it. With this, you're arguing as much about the issues the play raises as the way that the play deals with them, which was the same thing in Clyburn Park. What is the nature of gentrification? Whose past gets to control the future of a neighborhood? Big questions that he raises. In this play, you know, we had a lot of arguments, and we have lots of generations at ACT. Loads of 20-somethings because we're a school, and we have a big internship program. And then 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and where everybody sat in their lives influenced what they felt about the issues in the play. And I just loved the argument after. We couldn't get any Anybody to leave the room. Hours later, we were still duking this out, and I thought, this is good. We should do this. And Scorched. This is the play I'm truly excited about. It's a, a play by a Middle Eastern, by a Lebanese playwright, 
living in Montreal, writing in French. Wrote it for a French company. I saw it in its first English outing in Toronto. This is another example of our Canadian exchange. Translated by a remarkable translator, Linda Gaborio, who had done the Michel Tremblay play we did years ago. We've done a lot of French-Canadian work. So I knew her, and I'd worked with her, and I saw this play. It's very Greek. And you know I love Greek tragedy. I've worked on a lot of Greek plays, and it's about cycles of violence in a war-torn country. That is probably Lebanon, although not identified as such in the play. It is definitely the Middle East. It felt extremely trenchant and thrilling to me to put on a major stage like ACT's A Middle Eastern Play right now, given what's going on in the world. I think he's a great and important writer. The film version of this play, Asondi, has just been released. It was the foreign language uh, Canadian um, entry to the Oscars this year, and it's an exquisite piece of writing writing very poetic about twins who have to go back and discover the origins of their lives. Does the fact that it's a film that will be available soon, how does that impact your decision to put it on the stage? I didn't know that when we decided to okay. do it, but I was very excited about it. I, I think that with any unknown play, this is a, a writer who's a major force in Canada and in France, but is unknown in the United States, any way to widen the knowability of that, you know, the recognizability of it is really valuable. I haven't even seen the film yet. I've just watched the trailers because uh-huh. it hasn't come here, so I haven't gotten to see it, but it's beautiful. The film will be much more realistic. The play is very poetic. What I'm seeing between ACT shows like Clybourne Park or Scorched or Maple and Vine Mm. and over at Berkeley Rep, we're seeing Mm. shows like Ruined Mm. or The Great Game Afghanistan. I'm seeing theater being utilized in a way to get people to wake up. And maybe that's always been the role of theater and we just don't know it. Well, it certainly was. You know, Ruined, um, according to Lynn Nottage, was loosely based on Mother Courage. And Brecht would always have said that the point of his theater was to wake people up to the lives that they were living and the choices that they were making in a theatrical way. I think it's exciting that there are writers now working on a really broad canvas, asking big questions. These are not domestic dramas. They're not little feel-good plays. They're not television dramas. I think that's really exciting. A play like Ruined, a play like Scorch, these are poetic epic dramas that have to be seen live and that's the beauty of live theater Carrie Perloff I've noticed with Mark Rucker now with ACT the MFA shows at Zeeum have changed and shifted and it's become a second stage which it wasn't before I did get a chance to see Litter there's also the two plays from the Orphan's Home Cycle by Horton Foote coming up, and a Euripides play, and of course mm-hmm. Shakespeare, which to me is especially interesting because Mark Rucker has directed at mm-hmm. Cal Shakes. Right, right. Well, we've always done a parallel season with our MFAs and our Young Conservatory. I think it's just become more woven into the whole life of ACT. And one of the pleasures of having Mark is that he is as deeply invested in the school as he is on the main stage, and that's been a great break. And also, it has meant our MFA students are so visible on our main stage right now, which we're really proud of. Gary Perloff, how do you know when an audience is getting it? You feel, I guess it's one of the most amazing things about live theater, is you just don't know what you have till you put it in front of an audience. And then the audience tells you what the play is. 
you just feel it. I, I, I'm trying to think of a specific example, but you can be in the studio and think, this is going to be the really confusing part. We're going to have to really try to make this clear. And the minute you put it in front of an audience, it's totally clear. They're way ahead of it. You don't have to worry about it. Or a character that you think is the central character the audience finds opaque or uninteresting or uh, uh, unlikable. It's... it's um. You feel it. You feel it. You feel where the laughs are. You feel where people squirm. You feel... I'll tell you one thing I learned about the Pinter. In the moments where something really um, violent or arresting happens, there is a silence in the room with that play that is unlike anything I've ever experienced. And that's when you know an audience is getting it. Whether they think intellectually they're getting it or not, uh, there's a moment between the two brothers, between Max and Sam, where uh, Max says to him, he didn't even fight in the war. He didn't even fight in the bloody war. And Sam says, I did. And Max turns to him and says, who did you kill? And it's such an extraordinary question and an awful question that the audience just goes silent. And Ken Welsh, who played Sam, just let that hang. You know an audience is getting it if that silence doesn't break. Whereas if people are squirming or coughing or whatever, it hasn't landed. So it's a feeling in the room. And when you say they're way ahead of it, because this is something that I think Jason Minidakis let slip, and I know mm. that Tony Taccone has said it. When you say the audience is ahead of it, what exactly do you mean and how do you know? You know it because you can feel that they're antsy, that the revelations that are being parsed out in the script, they already see coming. So sometimes you know it because there's laughter where there shouldn't be because they, they think, oh, yes, we got that. We're not that stupid. Or you don't have to tell us this again. Um, give us something else. Or you can feel uh, the vocal response. You can tell. Well, how can you tell in something like Tosca Project? Well, that was so moving because there was audible emotional response. Music is very emotional. Visual images like a soldier coming home broken from a war with no language. If you are a vet or if you've been with someone who's had PTSD and you see the soldier Pascal Malat played coming in, it's visceral. It's interesting in movement theater, it's not mediated through language. So sometimes imagery hits our hearts faster. This is why dance sometimes can hit people faster and music. It's a very unmediated thing. And you could feel that in the room. People gasp or people audibly respond because emotionally they connected to it. How do you know in terms of whether an audience is getting something that you're trying to communicate and they're getting it. Because you can see how it pays off. Tom Stoppard always says this about language, that certain words you have to lift, early, as he calls it, lift or look after early in the play, and then they will pay off later on. And so you know it, not when you lift it the first time, but if it pays off later on, that there's certain things that come back. And if the audience has been watching carefully, the repetitions will matter. And when they come back, you'll hear a response in the audience. And if not, it means you didn't set it up well. The first preview of the Pinter, they didn't know who Jesse was. We had not set up clearly the name of the wife. So when Sam said at the end of the play, Max had Jesse in the back of my car as I was driving along, the audience didn't know that whether they should be shocked or not because they couldn't remember who Jesse was. You could feel it. There was just no response. So I knew we had not looked after that and that we had to look after that name. That's just an example. The word is somehow highlighted in the speaking of it. You make sure that you don't rush past it, that you give it its time, that it's framed in some way so that the audience hears it.
This goes on, I guess, through previews, and it's the importance of the previews then? I love the rehearsal process during previews because that's where you really learn what you have and what story you're really telling. And sometimes you have to go the other way and be very careful to cut laughs that you don't want. Laughter lets the steam out of the kettle. And sometimes you want that because it's nervous laughter, like in Clyburn Park, and it's hilarious and you have to let it. And sometimes you don't want it because it lets the tension out. So a lot of the rehearsal process and previews is figuring out how to play with the audience, where you want to let them in, where you want to keep them at bay, where you want to keep the tension. Carrie Perloff, one final question in terms of ACT. Is there anything anybody can do in terms of trying to preserve funding for the arts? It all starts with arts education. That's the most important thing. I know that sounds like a truism, but funding comes when people care, and people care when they realize that our children are being taught in a school environment in which there are no arts and that the arts are purveyors of empathy and literacy and humanity and that without that we're going to be a really impoverished culture. So we're putting huge energy into education right now. Beyond that, I think we all have to work really closely in our own communities to keep people involved at every level so that individual funding makes up for what is clearly going to be a big lack of government funding. You've been listening to an interview with Carrie Perloff, the Artistic Director of ACT, American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, playing now through May 1st, No Exit, the much-anticipated Tales of the City, playing May 18th through July 10th, and perhaps longer. If you want more information about all of this, you can go to their website, which is act-sf.org. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. for an evening with Malalai Joya, called the bravest woman in Afghanistan. She was elected to the Afghan parliament, but was kicked out for daring to denounce the warlords, Taliban, and U.S. NATO occupation. Ten years into the war, find out why all troops must leave immediately. It's on Saturday, April 9th, 6 to 7 reception. Program begins sharply at 7. It's at the Episcopal Church of St. John the Evangelist, the corner of 15th and Julian Streets in San Francisco. 10 to $25, but no one turned away. This is a benefit for programs of Malalai Joya for women in Pakistan and Afghanistan. For more information, sfjoya at gmail.com.